BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to another episode of Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Back in episode 167, I interviewed Heider Verreich to talk about how medicine has changed the end of life. He had written a book called Modern Death, which I found incredibly compelling. And so when his next book came across my desk, State of the Heart, I thought I would read it, but I didn't think that I would return for another interview. And then I couldn't put it down. Heider is a cardiologist by training, and the stories that he tells in his book and the questions that he raises and the ways that he has overturned what I thought were completely well-understood facts about the heart and its relationship to diet and other lifestyle factors completely blew me away. Heider Verreich, welcome back to Inquiring Minds. Well, it's great to be back. Uh, thank you for inviting me. You know, your book, Modern Death, really changed the way that I approach, you know, death and just the illness of my loved ones. And uh, State of the Heart has done the same thing. So congratulations on writing yet another groundbreaking book. Thank you. I, was, I had a, you know, honestly, I had a blast writing this book. And uh, I think that, you know, I, I'm a, I trained as a cardiologist and I felt you know, at the end of my training that I, geez, I know pretty much all I need to know, but, you know, researching and writing this book really helped me reach levels of understanding, not just about the heart, but really about science and history and how those two sort of have, uh, you know, evolved uh, around sort of the, 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 the story of this organ that's been so central to our understanding of, of life uh, and biology. So it was, it was just a great uh, ride for me as well. You know, I think that's one of the things that I find most compelling about it is that we sort of, you know, expect to hear about the studies that can distinguish good cholesterol from bad cholesterol and, you know, from all these, you know, things that we take for granted about what causes heart disease. And you just kind of lay out how there just isn't a lot of evidence for some of the things that we believe and have taken for granted for decades. So I'm, I'm really excited to get you to set our listeners straight on what the science cannot yet tell us, even if it means that the answer is, well, we don't know. Um, so I want to first start with, though, uh, something that, you know, you start out uh, your book and, and a lot of chapters with the story of a patient. And the first uh, story was was really kind of touching to me where you describe a patient who, you know, comes in with heart failure. And, you know, essentially, when they realize that they are at death's door, it's a surprise to them. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing is that when I first 
shared that story with um, you know with my editor and my agent they were kind of they were surprised they thought it was it was somewhat implausible that someone could have uh, really a terminal uh, uh, chronic condition like heart failure for many many years and 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 be surprised to find out you know that they that they have it even though they've been getting treated for it and they have people looking into it and yet Every time I've shared that story with a physician or for a nurse, they're like, oh, yeah, this happens all the time. And and to me, uh, this was really a great setup for the book because not only is it a great uh, or sort of powerful introduction to, uh, you know, one of the uh, this, this condition, but it also reflects on where we are with heart disease in general, where it's kind of become the forgotten disease. It's it's become it, it just doesn't have the same type of cachet that you know other conditions have you know i like to say that you know if someone whispers the word cancer in an auditorium you know everyone in that room will hear that word you know very few patients will hear the word cancer and then misremember it in some ways and yet heart disease has become one of those things where a lot of people just think about the heart as you know, the engine in your car, as you get older, you know, it starts to break down and you need to take it to the mechanic and they do, you know, a tune up and then you're back on the road again. And that really, you can just wait for it to get bad and then you can have it seen and you don't really have to take any special precautions for it. And I felt that that story really said, and that's obviously ironic for a disease that still kills more people, unfortunately, than any other condition in the world. So I thought that that was a appropriate setup for this book. Yeah, I mean, most of us think of if if you if you're going to die because you're something to do with your heart, it will be because you had a heart attack or and it stopped, right? It's not that there's this slow decline and 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 if there's a slow decline, then people think about well, atherosclerosis. There's like a buildup of stuff that eventually is going to block the heart. So I, I want to start out first with having you kind of walk us through what heart failure is and how can people walk around with heart failure and barely know it. So let's talk about, so I want to first talk about the the word that you just kind of mentioned, which is atherosclerosis, which is really, you know, I, you know, I think when a lot of people, you know, including me, I'm guilty of this, we talk about heart disease, but, you know, we don't really clarify what that means. And I, I think it's an opportunity to sort of introduce the, this sort of process into uh, at least minds of your readers. So but, but atherosclerosis is basically the slow buildup of cholesterol in your blood vessels. And uh, these cholesterol filled plaques, not like the plaques in your teeth, but really they're just lesions or they, that they fill up your blood vessels eventually to the point that they can even completely obstruct them. This process happens over decades and decades. So for for example, if you take, if you look at teenagers in, or adolescent kids in, uh, you know, high income countries, you will find in their blood vessels, these things called fatty streaks, which are the precursors to a full developed atherosclerotic plaque. And when this plaque ruptures, if it bursts open, it basically unleashes this really powerful inflammatory cascades where the immune system becomes totally activated because it's like, well, what's going on? Where's this? We need to do something about this sort of spill that's going going on in the blood vessel. It, it comes in and forms a blood clot there, basically obstructing that blood vessel. And this is the process that 
happens when someone has a heart attack. You, you know, people have an atherosclerotic plaque in one of the blood vessels supplying the heart with oxygen, and a, a plaque bursts there, and then you have a clot form there, totally obstructing blood flow, causing a heart attack. But this process also happens in the brain when patients have strokes, or in people's legs when they have, uh, you know, peripheral arterial disease. So, and and it it accounts for the vast majority of cases of quote-unquote, heart disease when people talk about it. It's probably the most important pathogenic process in the history of you know mankind, especially in our modern history. And yet I'm surprised that it's not a word that people are familiar with. I just want to jump in and say, you know, you've already corrected something that I, I had forgotten. Uh, I've, you know, I've, I, I literally read your book in the last couple of weeks, and I had already forgotten that, yes, it's true. What, what you mentioned is that it's not the buildup of cholesterol that causes the blockage. It's the immune system's clotting reaction. I mean, I think that for most people that, well, at least for me, that was totally new knowledge. And it suggests that then, you know, the, the way the disease is treated um, is, is different. It's not just about, you know, reducing the amount of cholesterol in the blood, but also sort of working on this immune system response. Right. And also uh, on the clot. So those are, those are three different, I mean, I think we've highlighted all three of the different mechanisms. So, you know, something that helps reduce the burden of plaques in your blood vessels, that's something that can work on a more long-term time scales. So, you know, things like medications to lower cholesterol in your blood, like statin medications or other exercise and other things, uh, they can reduce your long-term risk of heart disease or heart attacks, etc. In the acute setting, when people do have heart attacks, there's a couple of things you can do. One is you give them medications, you give patients medications that can help dissolve these blood clots. But frequently you have to do procedures such as the one that for example, Bernie Sanders just got in which you uh, put in a small metal wireframe directly into the blood vessel where the obstruction is and kind of open it up, pry it open through this sort of minimally invasive procedure. This is a procedure called cardiac catheterization. And then the third thing is targeting inflammation, which is really, I think, what is, if you know, if I were to sort of uh, put my nickel down and forecast what the future might be. It might really be, you know, thinking about how we can modulate the inflammatory reaction because inflammation, not only does inflammation in first lead to the creation of plaques in the blood vessel, but it's also responsible for this sort of acute rupture of uh, um, plaques as well. So it really bookends the entire process um, so, so, so that's atherosclerosis, and that accounts for, I guess, a vast majority of you know cases, and and that's really what people think about when they think about heart disease. They think about the heart attack, the clutching of the chest, the dramatic fall, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it used to be that a heart attack was a terminal diagnosis. Um, I mean, for most people, they would either die or they would be so debilitated that they would never be able to function normally again. And yet, the, with you know improvements in medical therapies, improvements in uh, diagnosis, improvements in uh, invasive procedures such as you know cardiac catheterization, which I've already mentioned, uh, I mean, what is a better example of the progress we've made than just yesterday when Bernie was on the stage? You know, about what ten days after he had a heart attack and had stents placed and. And you couldn't tell. I mean, this he was at, you know, he had the same energy as you would expect from him, you know, even before this happened. 
but one of the things that's a consequence of you know the advances in being able to treat and uh, you know people who have uh, heart attacks is that many of them can live long and and go on to develop this other condition called heart failure. And I there's a and this term heart failure is kind of tricky. And there is actually debate in the medical community about what about whether it's the right term, whether we should change it. So let me explain to you what it is. Heart failure is basically a very simple condition. It means that the heart is failing to do what it's supposed to do, which are, I would say, two major things. One is that it pushes blood to all your important organs, like your brain, your gut, your um, kidneys. And the other thing that the heart does is that it also helps keep, keep blood moving through your body it prevents it from kind of sitting around and get getting sort of seep and, and fluid seeping into things like your lungs or in your legs, et cetera, or in your belly. And heart failure sounds like, well, when, you know, when people use the word, you know, some people assume that, oh, heart failure means that your heart has failed and you're about to sort of drop dead. But it's a chronic disease and people can live with it for decades and decades. In older patients, heart failure can be a very... Um, can be very uh, can be concerning, uh, and certainly heart failure is 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 an emer- It's really truly a modern disease because so many the reason one of the important reasons why we have heart failure is because a we help people live long enough to develop it, and and b we help people survive what would have been fatal events. So even though they don't die of that specific event, they may over time develop uh, this kind of sequel to that acute condition. And heart failure is increasing in prevalence. It's, so it's responsible for the most number of admissions to the hospital in the United States is the single most important cause. So it's really a, a, a particularly modern disease in which is hard to treat and almost a consequence of some of the successes we've had in other areas. So I would say that heart disease, for the most part, can be divided into these two buckets. One of the things that you mentioned is sort of what the heart does and what it's for, which, you know, as now that we know that over the last, you know, few decades, or maybe even a little bit longer than that, would be surprising to people who are around, say, 150 years ago, or even for someone who is not educated in, in human anatomy, because it feels as if the heart is so much more central to who we are. In fact, you know, people who have chest pain or who have, you know, heart disease that or, or chest pain, I should say, that is related to the heart. Talk about it's more than just that there's like a sense of doom that comes that goes beyond just like reflux. Right. So can you talk a little bit about what what that is and whether there is a lot for us still to learn about the relationship between, you know, the heart and our nervous system and kind of some of these more emotional or existential aspects of our identities. Yeah. So the heart is has been very central to what, you know, we what we think about when we think about human life. And the heart has been an even more even as as important as an organ as it is, you can argue that it's even been even more important as a metaphor for what it means to be human, for what it is to feel emotions. In fact, the very first story that's ever been recorded or been discovered in human history, the Epic of Gilgamesh, even in that story which was, you know, found on these stone tablets, uh, written, you know, what three thousand, you know, years before in BC, 
you, the heart was central to what it meant to be a human being. And it kind of makes sense in some ways. You know, I think, you know, if you look at the kidneys, for example, they, they serve very essential or the very essential functions, but they kind of work in this bureaucratic silence. And yet the heart is like this, you know, very dramatic, very active organ that is, you know, eager to impress its uh, possessor with how hard it can work. And it, it, it feels like it changes as, you know, as you feel different emotions. So, you know, if you're walking across the street and suddenly, you know, car, you know, screeches right in front of you, heart starts, you know, pounding and, you know, almost as if, you know, reacting to how you feel. And at the, at the same time, you know, if you go and, you know, have, have, you know, a great meal, like, for example, like if you have one of those, you know, you know, Popeye's chicken sandwiches, which are, you know, great. I don't know if you've tried one. And then after it, your heart slows down as you kind of relax and you feel kind of nice and warm all over. So it it's mirrors our feelings in a way that is so universal. So it, it, it's not surprising that it seems like it's been linked to, you know, how we feel and uh, or really since uh, the dawn of uh, civilization. And for a while, then, then, then as modern medicine kind of proliferated, this sort of heart-mind connection kind of went away. And now it's coming back. And I, I like to pump the brakes on that whole idea a bit. I mean, there's a condition called you know, Takasubo's cardiomyopathy, which is, you know, referred to lovingly in the media, popularly as, you know, broken heart syndrome, in which people can basically have, you know, what what is a, an equivalent of a heart attack when they face a stressful situation. But, you know, I think stress affects the heart, but in, in significant ways, but most of those effects are indirect. Uh, you know, stress can make many of the risk factors for heart disease worse, like diabetes, like blood pressure. Uh, stress can make it less likely that you take medications that you've been prescribed to take. Uh, stress can make it less likely that you do other things that you should be doing for your health, like eating right or exercising. So so there is a there is a clear connection between the heart and the mind, but you know my sense is, given you know where heart disease is, it's those indirect effects of stress that end up being much more significant than this sort of traditional idea that we've had about this uh, sort of more direct connection. And there's evidence, of course, that stress has an impact on inflammation or immune system function, um, which is another you know you know way in which it could have an indirect effect. If you're struggling to get a good night's sleep, try a Purple Mattress. The Purple Mattress will probably feel different than anything you've experienced because it uses brand new material that was developed by an actual rocket scientist. It's not like the memory foam you're used to. The Purple material is both firm and soft at the same time, so it keeps everything supported and that's why they say it still feels really comfortable. Plus, it's breathable, so it sleeps cool. Try it for 100 nights risk-free, and if you're not completely satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund. And it's backed by a 10-year warranty. Plus, you get free shipping and returns. And right now, you'll get a free purple pillow with the purchase of a mattress. That's in addition to the great free gifts they're offering site-wide. Just text MINDS to 84888. So the only way to get the free pillow is to text MINDS to 84888. That's M-I-N-D-S to 84888. Message and data rates may apply. Bayer knows that behind every breakthrough are people who dare to move the world forward. It's human ingenuity that drives progress. 
Time and time again, we keep doing the things that couldn't be done. The sky was the limit until we walked on the moon. It once took weeks to communicate before it took a fraction of a second. So what's next? Bayer is working with farmers to shape the future of agriculture. Farms where all life grows together. Tools that help plants and farmers use less water and crops that can raise communities out of poverty. What we can achieve is simply an extension of what we can imagine. We've been proving it for thousands of years. That's why Bayer is driven to find even better answers to today's best solutions. When we're brave enough to challenge what hasn't been done, we discover the science behind what's yet to come. That's science for a better life. So let's talk a little bit about some of the kind of advice that people have been given about what they should be eating. And, you know, I think we all know the things that we probably shouldn't be eating, but let's talk about why and whether there's real evidence. And so I wanted to start with cholesterol and, you know, we hear about good cholesterol and bad cholesterol and you describe it, you describe in your book that, you know, we're, I kind of think about, you know, we're in this quantified self era where we, we like numbers are good, right? And so like, you, if you can boost one number and lower another number, that gives you a sense of progress. Um, but that might be a mistaken view kind of built upon not so great science or science, at least that has started to be, you know, um, overturned. So, so, so tell us about cholesterol. So, I mean, cholesterol has this, you know, really rich history. It's been, you know, it's you, you can argue it's one of the most, uh, you know, it's it's it, for many scientists, it's been a it's been a very rewarding molecule. I mean, I think more uh, Nobel prizes have been awarded for, you know, helping for to scientists helping us understand how cholesterol works than really anything else that comes to mind right now. And I would say that at this point, the the science of cholesterol has reached a fair degree of maturity, more so than I would say many other things, and uh, especially in nutrition. I guess what we know is that you know lowering sort of LDL cholesterol, which is sort of referred to as bad cholesterol, and the LDL cholesterol, what it does is that its its function is to take cholesterol that's made in your liver and transports it to the rest of the body. And if it, if you have an inflamed state, then those, L, that, those LDL deposits can actually go right into your blood vessels, forming plaques and et cetera, et cetera, leading us back down that path that we talked about. And there is, I would say, more evidence in this area than almost anything else in science that lowering LDL cholesterol through diet through exercise, through um, medications, is one of the best things we can do for our to reduce our risk of heart attacks and heart disease in general. The, that, so the, that part is fairly settled. The other thing that we start to see while we were when we first discovered about these all these different types of lipoproteins or these different types of sort of capsules filled with cholesterol was that there was this one co- uh, capsule that almost seem to have this opposite effect. And that's called, you know, some people call it good cholesterol. We call it, you know, in cardiology, high density lipoprotein. And this does the opposite function of the bad protein in the sense that it takes the cholesterol from your blood vessels and sends it back to the liver. And what we started seeing in observational studies was that people who had high HDL cholesterols just seemed to have I mean, it seemed to uh, they, they did much better uh, than people who had lower uh, HDLs. So these patients, you know, had much lower risk of heart disease, stroke, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, so we, you know, as a, you know, community, you know, in medicine and uh, in um, the pharmaceutical industry, we tried to really do everything we could to find sort of new way of reducing the risk of heart disease. We already developed means to reduce LDL. Now we went on this sort of long saga to try and reduce HDL, so improve HDL to see if that would help people. And I guess maybe you can judge by you know my tone that that didn't end well. In fact, almost every treatment that we developed that increases HDL artificially did not actually lead to improved outcomes. The only time improving HDL actually leads to an improved outcome is when we improve it with things like you know better diet or exercise. And and even then, it's unclear if it's the improvement in HDL that leads to better outcomes or if it's because of some other effects that those changes are having. And part of why I went into this story and part of why, you know, I, you know, took a deep dive into, you know, areas like this is that I think if you're, if you're not a cardiologist or even if you are a cardiologist and and you do this for a living, it can be very confusing because one day you read about something and it's like, oh, this is, you know, the best thing to happen since, you know the elixir of life, and then the next and the next day you learn that oh that thing is poison. I mean, take for example eggs or, or meat, and you know you have all these flip flops and uh, almost you know almost sometimes on a daily basis. And I wanted to sort of take a different approach. I feel like traditionally, whatever, whenever you know someone writes a book on the heart, or they always focus on oh do this, do that, blah blah blah. But those things can change very quickly. And, and so I wanted to take a different approach. I wanted to you know, inform readers about the veracity of the science that generates whatever finding they're looking at. And one of the key differences was to educate readers about the difference between observational studies, which can be very confounded and can, and can lead to erroneous findings, and randomized clinical trials in which the, the risk of confounding is much lesser because I feel like that's a much more robust approach if you are going to have a meaningful conversation with your readers is that instead of trying to act like you know you know you know the answer uh, especially in areas where the answer may not be readily present or maybe kind of built on shaky grounds we, we should be able to accept that we we don't know but, but but what we can do in that area, and at least what I thought to do was that, well, what, what can I, how can I help a reader make better sense of what they read in the newspaper long after they've put my book down, long after when we hopefully have better evidence? So that was, that was the approach I took. So instead of focusing on, you know, do this or do that, I would rather have readers be more informed about how to just make sense of a research paper, like how to just answer a simple question about whether a specific study can make a claim about causality about whatever intervention is being discussed. And, and observational studies cannot do that. While randomized trials can do that to a greater, much greater extent, certainly more so than an observational study. And I think that's been one of the problems is that it's really hard to do a randomized control trial where you, you know, force people to eat eggs or or, or completely restrict them. You know what I mean? Like, I think that that I think that traditionally has been really hard um, and because they're expensive. And so, you know, there has to be some either 
large government funding or some potential profit uh, as people will invest in these kinds of studies. Um, But you're right. I mean, some of these observational studies are huge, you know, tens of thousands of patients. And you think, oh, well, how could that possibly be wrong? And yet there's lots of evidence in your book of many times in which those observational studies have led to hypotheses that just have not have not been supported um, when the actual interventional studies have been taken on. And, you know, one example that I think is really uh, clear is uh, the 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 relationship between hormone replacement therapy in women and uh, the sort of its relationship with heart disease. So, uh, you know, in the 90s, uh, there was data from really from hundreds of thousands of patients, from dozens of observational studies that showed that women who were taking hormone replacement therapy had a lower risk of heart disease. And this really became the mantra to help lower the risk of heart disease in women who were kind of perimenopausal or postmenopausal. And yet it was only after decades of this becoming really the de facto truth in science that we did the trials and we actually found out that no, that not only can they not have a benefit, sometimes they can actually make things worse. And that's you know, I, I struggle with that. I struggle with the idea that, you know, we don't always have the best evidence and how do you communicate uncertainty to, you know, patients or caregivers. But more and more as I've trained, I, I've become more comfortable in just sharing, you know, sh- sharing the fact that, you know, we don't know the answer, but what we do have is the best available data in the moment. And what we can control is not the necessarily the outcome, but we can control the process through which we reach that decision. And so that's, I mean, that's been my sort of philosophy as I, you know, try and get patients more engaged into some of these difficult decisions in which we just don't know the answer because the evidence is just not there. Another great example of this is when people say, well, you know, big pharma is pushing statins because they're going to make a huge profit. And so you point out that that's probably not the case. Especially now, like if anything, the context is that statins have been and the best-selling drugs in the history of humankind, legal drugs, I would say. Uh, and uh, so atorvastatin or Lipitor is the best-selling drug of all time. But now, and, and, and I, you know, anyone, and I'm always skeptical of pharmaceutical companies because I do understand what their sort of, at the end, what their main objective really is. But statins are all generic now. In fact, they've been generic for many years. So, the, you know, big brand companies actually don't make any money off of them. And they're, they're, they're very, very cheap. They're, you can really buy them, you know, for cents uh, sometimes. Uh, and if anything, uh, I would argue that the pharmaceutical companies, which now make alternative cholesterol-lowering therapies, which are all way, way, way more expensive than statins, have almost a mal intent to overblow their harms. I mean, because that, that, that way they, they can they can they can have more people use their on patent more expensive alternatives. And so so if anything, yeah, I mean there's a lot of misconceptions. I mean every time I write something about statins, you know, I think a lot of people agree, but you know, so a lot of people just will say that, oh, you know, he's he's probably in the pocket of big pharma. Uh and and it's not like that's unfounded. I mean, I think there are many people in our profession who have betrayed the trust of the public. And but at least in this case, I mean, certainly I haven't taken money from any you know any type of industry 
sponsor. So, you know, I feel pretty good about it when I talk about statins because I, I just kind of look at the evidence and, and just follow it. One thing, too, that was surprising is that when you and, and in some ways you mentioned maybe potential mechanism for this finding is that when people read about the side effects of statins, they experience more of those side effects, the nocebo effects. So tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, how that works and, and what the evidence is for that. Sure. I mean, so everyone's kind of heard about the placebo effect in which you, the body basically kind of recreates a pleasant, pleasant feeling when they, you know, when in fact that may be totally kind of in your, in your head almost. The nocebo effect is a, is, is kind of the opposite in which the body, when it's expecting harm, it recreates a uncomfortable feeling. And it's really a defense mechanism. It's really the body's anticipating feeling bad, and it's the body's way of kind of preparing you to feel that, so that it, you know, in some ways maybe takes the edge off of that when when it really hits you. And it's very well documented. I mean, uh, really, every single time we have a randomized control trial in which you have a placebo arm, there are a lot of patients who will have symptoms like, you know, pain and fevers and all sorts of things. And that's all really a manifestation of, uh, at least most of it is a manifestation of the nocebo effect. And as, especially with statins, you know, one of the interesting things we've had with statins is that we really have this epidemic of people developing muscle aches and pains from statins. And that's, I mean, that can be a really serious problem because, you know, the inability to take statins comes at a great cost. I mean, we people lose access to one of the few life-saving therapies we have, uh, and there's data to suggest that 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 the discontinuation of statins actually leads to higher mortality. This is again observational study, but it's fairly well designed. Well, so the question is, well, well, why are, why do patients have these muscle aches? And and there's this one trial that I think really really uh, highlights this the problem at hand very well. So none of the major randomized trials have ever shown, shockingly, that the number of people who have you know, routine aches and pains, uh, muscle aches, is higher with statins than with placebo. Uh, there is very rarely a, you know, a condition called rhabdomyolysis, which is basically just you know, just widespread breakdown of muscle fibers that can sometimes happen with statins, but it's very rare and it's very uncommon. What we're talking about are people who have aches and pains, muscle pains, without any sort of evidence of damage. And uh, in in routine clinical practice, this affects a fifth of patients, which is a huge number. And but but one trial really sort of set the stage for you know I think what this discussion is going to be about. So in this trial, trial called ASCOT, people are randomized to a statin versus a placebo. And so in both arms, the number of patients who had muscle aches and pains was the exact same. So it was about, it's usually around 20, 25% in trials. So 20, 25% of people in this arm who, again, no one knew what they were taking. I mean, it was a blinded study. So, uh, so people, so a third of patients, uh, you know, who were taking statins and a third of patients who were taking placebo, both thought equally that they were having muscle aches and pains from whatever they were taking. So there's no increased effect of the statins. What happened then during the middle of the trial was that it became so clear and so obvious through other studies that statins were extremely beneficial and that 
doing a trial in which half of your patients are being given placebo is actually like unethical because you're depriving them of a potentially life-saving therapy. So they had to, you know, they had to stop the trial, but they did something interesting. They, instead of just kind of stopping it cold turkey, they did something that they, they just unblinded the trial, which, which is what it means is that they just told the patients whether they were taking statins or whether they were taking placebo and kind of let them continue doing what they wanted to do. And so here's the interesting thing. So now that people knew, the patients and subjects in this trial knew that they were taking statins, the number of people who were having aches and pains on statins shot up, while the number of people who were now realized that they were taking placebo actually plummeted. And so it, it, it showed just how powerful just the idea, just knowing that you're taking a statin can have on your sort of on their mind and reproducing some of these, you know, altruistic symptoms. And now that you take a step back, now that you know that just being sensitized to this can uh, lead you to sort of being having these symptoms reproduced. I mean, think about all the f- all the medical misinformation and fake news that's been around statins on the internet and other mediums. I mean, if you search for statins, I mean, some of the biggest hits are from total fraudsters who overplay the risks of statins. I mean, so many patients I see in clinic come in with these preconceived ideas about what statins will make them feel. And this isn't just muscle aches. It's also that they'll stop thinking, it'll cause dementia, et cetera, et cetera. Everything, every one of those side effects has been proven false. But when an idea becomes so pervasive in society, so does the expected nocebo effect from just having that idea. So, so it's been this interesting sort of nexus of where, you know, we all talk about fake news in the political world, but what I've seen as a cardiologist and one of the things I wrote about in the book was that fake medical news is actually an equally important uh, phenomenon, one that's actually becoming increasingly obstructive to the optimal care of patients with cardiovascular disease. So yeah, it's been an, it's, it's an interesting story for sure. It's a great cautionary tale not to Google the side effects of whatever drugs your doctors are prescribing for you. And I think it suggests another reason why we should trust physicians and, you know, that, that the doctor-patient relationship is really quite critical for our health, even though a lot of the information is available to us online, especially, you know, if you have access to the original articles, you think that you could just ed- educate yourself. But, you know, the, the truth is, is that there are some things that you don't want to know, uh, because if you do know them, then you'll be more likely to experience the negative side effects. Right. I, I remember when I was, a, I was a kid, I, you know, I, I don't have this problem now, but there were times that I would get stressed out and I would be able to sleep. And I, I had this antihistamine that I would take a really a very small, I would take like a third of the pill, I'd take it and I would always sleep like a baby. And then one day I was reading the label and it said that it's a non-sedating antihistamine. <laughs> and I almost wanted to cry because I felt like just that knowledge has taken away this gift from me. But yeah, I mean, I think that people should, I mean, people should be People should ask the hard questions of their doctors. I mean, they shouldn't, no doctor should be trusted blindly. I mean, and so, you know, patients should, you know, they should, they should test the waters. They should, they should test their physician to see if they're uh, open to, if they're open, if they're, if they're good listeners, how they respond to their questions. But in the end, the vast majority of physicians, you know, they are just doing this because they want to do what's best for the patient in front of them. So, so yeah, so I, I, I would sort of, push back a bit. I, I don't think every, you know, I, I think physicians need to earn trust before 
it's given to us. I mean, I think for a long time in history, it's just been provided to us and we've been given this great stature, but we really need to take a step back and be a bit more humble. Well, I want to remind our listeners that Heider's book, State of the Heart, Exploring the History, Science, and Future of Cardiac Disease is now available at booksellers everywhere. This uh, book is so packed with things that I would love to keep talking about, like evolution and you know the, the way in which evolution has shaped our hearts uh, and what we know about it, but also just so many things that you talk about in terms of uh, the, the medical process and the scientific process and where we're going. Um, and so I guess I kind of want to end with that that question. You know, you do talk about the future of cardiac disease, and that would be a place, you know, I think for a lot of us, we're concerned with the fact that even though lifespan doubled in, in you know, the, during the uh, 20th century it, in developed countries, it now seems to have plateaued. <laughs> um, so, you know, is, and given that, you know, heart disease is a major killer, uh, is there something in the future that you think is coming down the pipeline or that, you know, is, is it, is it that we need more basic research? Like what do we need to do to solve this problem so that we can live longer? Sure. So, you know, we, uh, we can go back to some of the major things that we talked about. So, you know, we talked about the atherosclerosis and I think that we can still do better in really minute and first a first understanding, well, why do we have it? And, and then using that knowledge to really try and beat it in its tracks before it becomes more entrenched. I think that's a really an opportunity where we can, you know, go further. I think uh, inflammation and its role in heart disease and other diseases is something that's, you know, you know, under under a great amount of scrutiny right now. And so that's another avenue that I'm excited about. And the other thing that we're seeing is that we're seeing these really revolutionary treatments for heart failure. So, you know, you know heart transplant is, you know, considered the ultimate therapy for a failing heart. But over the last few years, we've seen the development of these new sort of mechanical pumps called LVADs, which are, you know, sutured right into the heart and helps basically uh, pump blood to the rest of the body. I mean, while they're still, you know, not as durable as heart transplants are, uh, they also don't have the, you know, the the, the resource uh, scarcity issue that transplants have. And also they've actually made a lot of progress over the last few years. So, you know, I wouldn't actually be surprised if in, you know, 10, 15 years or more, that heart transplants uh, are superseded by these mechanical pumps. But these pumps are very invasive. I mean, they they change what I think many of the sort of core principles of human life that we come to expect. I mean, patients with LVADs, I mean, most of them don't have a pulse because blood travels continuously through the body with the pump rather than in pulses with the normal heart. These patients, if you or people, if you listen, if you put a stethoscope to their chest, I mean, you actually hear the humming of the pump rather than the you know beats of the heart. So it's really a revolutionized human life in a way that you know very few technologies have. But looking back, I mean, we you know I started talking about heart disease as a forgotten disease, and and one of the things that we are seeing is that increasingly heart disease is affecting people who don't have the means to advocate for themselves effectively. So we're, we're seeing that increasingly heart disease is becoming more and more concentrated in people who have low incomes and who are poor. We're seeing the heart disease becoming more and more common amongst 
racial and ethnic minorities, uh, while it's becoming less common and less fatal in uh, white patients. We're seeing that heart disease is becoming increasingly common around the world in, in low and middle income countries like you know, India, Pakistan, China, Indonesia, really ac- across the world, and higher income countries are seeing fewer of heart disease. So what we and and in, even in countries like the United States, I mean, we're seeing it's it's rural areas which are having higher rates of heart disease than urban areas. So all of those indicate that this phenomenon that we've seen in which heart disease has been pushed to the margins may actually get worse because now it's increasingly going to affect people who, you know, just don't have you know, the, don't know how to, you know, function the levers of our society to be able to increase the volume uh, and increase the footprint that, you know, some, you know, these conditions have, uh, which is necessary if you're going to keep having funding for, to advance science and, and to keep it in the crosshairs of policymakers. So, so that, so even though you're seeing a lot of progress, I think many of these demographic changes in heart disease do give me a lot of pause. And do make me think about, well, who is going to speak for these patients in the future? Well, on that note, you're doing a great job speaking for them already. Uh, so thank you, Heider Vreich, uh, for coming on Inquiring Minds again. Well, thank you so much for uh, inviting me again. I have such a blast being able to talk, uh, really sort of get let my inner cardiology nerd out and... Uh, <laughs> and really go into the weeds as far as some of the sort of studies and the details are concerned. Thank you for letting me do that. I'm still blown away by the idea of someone being fully human and alive and walking around without a pulse. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rahala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushidan, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Awald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.